You're listening to the podcast, So You Want to Be a Writer, with Valerie Koo and Allison Tate. Valerie is an author, journalist, and national director of the Australian Writers Centre, which is one of the world's leading providers of online and classroom courses for people who want to get published and write with confidence. Alison Tate is a freelance writer, blogger, and author of the best-selling series, The Mapmaker Chronicles. She has more than 20 years' professional writing experience. Each week, they explore the world of writing, publishing, and blogging to bring you news and opportunities, advice on how to succeed in the world of writing, interviews with top writers, and much more. With students enrolling from all over the world, you can find out more about the Australian Writers' Centre at writerscentre.com.au. Hello, everyone, and welcome to episode 174 of So You Want to Be a Writer. My name's Valerie Koo, and I'm here with Alison Tate. What's been happening in the world of Al this week? Al? <laughs> well, Val, um, Al, are we going to talk about me in the third person? Because that's always fun. Let's do that. Al, A dot L dot, has been uh, actually, you know, it's funny because they have been authoring. We like to call it authoring around here. It's a little bit like queening. Did you ever watch um, The Crown? Yes. You know, the series? Yes, you know fantastic how they have, series. Yeah, you know how they have that conversation where they discuss, you know, is she how much queening is she going to have to do this week, et cetera? There was this whole conversation that she had um, oh. with Philip very early on about, you know, what am I supposed to do while you're out queening? Um, yes. So the builder calls it queening. When I have to go to Sydney for days on end to do <laughs> talks and various other things, he's like, how much queening have you got this week? <laughs> oh, that's hilarious. I love I that. So I did a bit of queening last week, so that was quite fun. I was at um, I did a, a talk for the CBCA North Sydney branch meeting, which Great. was amazing. Uh, honestly, it was a terrific. I've never, so, you know, I kind of rolled up to do my thing. And, yes. um there's the meeting, and the meeting has got Kate Forsyth, Belinda Morell, Jackie wow. Harvey, like the number of like talk about a star-studded group. I was yes. I was kind of a little bit nervous to be honest to be standing right. up in front of all those fabulous ladies. Um, wow! But it was terrific. They were so welcome,ing and uh, that the talk went really really well. And um, my sister Maxabella made a guest mm. starring appearance as my barrel girl, much Hello, to everyone. Hello, Maxabella. Hello, Isabella. Um, yeah, much to everyone's, you know, amusement. There she was doing her stuff. Um, so that was good. And then I spent a couple of days uh, doing some author talks and workshops um, at a school in the inner west in in Sydney, and that went really well. I was uh, road testing or rolling out rather my new. I've got a new workshop called Unlocking the Story Code: The Ten Keys to a Great Story. And that's for kids. That's for kids, yeah. This mm -hmm. is one of the workshops yep. I do for schools. And um, so I rolled that out for 100 Year 5 boys. Oh, my um, goodness, 100. Was, do you know what I mean? It's like baptism by fire. If oh, it's not I can't even work, cope with the four across the road. <laughs> if it's not going to, um, you, you, you know pretty quickly if it's going to stack up as a workshop that's, you know, engaging and all yes. of that. Um, so it was great. It went really, really well, and I was very, very pleased with it. So, um yeah, and then I was exhausted. So Yeah, that, absolutely. So fun. the talk that you did in North Sydney with the CBCA, now, of course, that's the Children's Book Council of Australia. Now, yes. who goes to such talks and, and what is the point of the Children's Book Council of Australia? 
Well, this particular, uh, this is a very active branch. So it's quite an interesting, um, it was quite an interesting one to go to. But as I said, it, it, so it was, there was a lot of published authors in the room. There were aspiring authors in the room. There were interested parties who'd come along because they listened to the podcast. I would just like to say hello to those fabulous people. Um, so, you know, it was especially to Ian who even offered to bring Bonoffi Pie if he thought you were going to be there. <laughs> Thank you, Ian. I was a little bit sad for you that you weren't there. <laughs> Um, but strangely enough, Val and I don't actually spend every waking moment together as much as we would like to. Um, yeah, so it was um, – and the, this particular group is, is, as I said, very active and they organise every year. They, they do a lot of um, active promotion of children's literature basically um, and they work – um, as part of the Children's Book Council of Australia. So at the moment they are organising a big, they do a literary lunch for um, students every year called the Lunch with the Stars, which I was part of last year. I was one of the stars, which was awesomely fun. Um, mm-hmm. So they are in the process of organising that uh, at the moment. They also um, run a travelling suitcase program. So their authors um, put, so Kate Forsyth debuted her, her new suitcase that she's put together, which is basically uh, a great collection of bits and pieces that relate to her books and it goes out to regional schools where perhaps an author can't necessarily get to or they can't afford to have an author, you know, come for the day. But the suitcase goes there and it's got a big stack of teacher's notes and, um, you know, activities and costumes and a set of her books, uh, The Impossible Quest, um, and then a, a whole range of different things in it. And the idea is that it goes to a school and then the school sort of does, you know, with various classes, different activities and things like that relating to Kate's books. Um, and it includes, she, she, we have spoken before about how Kate creates a, a notebook for yes. each of her. So this actually has a beautiful notebook in it. Um, oh. And in it, it has bits and pieces of, um, you know, the notes that she put together when she was actually writing the books and some pictures. And oh, it's, look, it's a wonderful thing. And um, so they have two new suitcases. Louise Park has also created a suitcase. So they, de- they debuted those. Um, so it's a great place. I think what these meetings are, and, and I think if there is a CBCA, you know, group near you, it's really mm. worth joining if you are a children's author because they get together quarterly. They talk about where the industry is at. They have different guest speakers that come along and, you know, share their stories and different things. But you also are networking with um, with a whole range of other authors who are, you know, either on the same path as you or a little bit ahead of you on the path or whatever. And, um, yeah, I look, honestly, it was, it was a wonderful room of people and they were so welcoming. So if you are interested, um, perhaps have a look at the CBCA website and see if you can find a group near you. There's actually a very active one in the Illawarra as well, which I um, attend their literary lunch every year. That's always fun. So yeah, so I, uh, yeah, look, honestly, fantastic night. I had a great time and thank you so much all for welcoming me so well. Yeah, wonderful. That's exciting. Sounds like you've had a busy week. I have. I have. And now I'm <laughs> And now I'm talking to you, Val, which is even better. So what have, what have, what have, what have you been up to, Val? Well, I had a really busy week in a very different sense because I think Ian, who wanted to bring the Banoffee pie to uh, the uh, CBCA meeting, must have been psychic because that would have actually been the week of my birthday. And mm-hmm. whenever That's that happens, right. it's just a little bit too full of social activity <coughs> and a lot of cake. And oh. I, and Which I is not necessarily a bad thing. Not right? a bad thing. Not a bad thing. So I do thoroughly enjoy it. But by the end of that week, I'm absolutely 
exhausted. Like I could barely keep my eyelids open. So there, it wasn't too productive in terms of a, of a work sense or even in my rope art sense, you know, my latest obsession, but it was very productive in terms of eating and uh, catching up with people. But now I'm very keen to get back into the swing of things. It's gonna, The Sydney Writers Festival is coming up. I've got all my sessions planned out and I Who's your, don't... What's your number one session that you're looking forward to, Val? Without a doubt, it is Thomas Friedman. Mm-hmm. Uh, and he's got two sessions going. I'm only going to one of them because the other one was, like, amazingly expensive. Okay. <laughs> like it was a special... Um, fancy dinner kind of thing. But anyway, I'm going to uh, the other one, which I'm sure will be just as good. And Thomas Friedman uh, wrote the book, um, Thank You for Being Late, which is his Mm. most recent book. But I discovered him many, many years ago, like over 10 years ago, uh, when he wrote the book, The World is Flat. And Mm. as you know, I really enjoy nonfiction. And when I read The World is Flat, which I don't even remember why I picked it up or you know, decided that would be even interesting. Um, but I couldn't, I literally could not put it down to the point where I took it on the treadmill and oh. spent an hour on the treadmill and I could not stop. I could not put the book down and I just had to keep turning the pages because it was riveting from the the first sentence. Mm-hmm. which I even remember the opening scene. And um, he's, he is a nonfiction writer who can turn, you know, complex subjects or seemingly dry subjects into absolute works of art. So I'm oh. very, very keen to hear him speak and I hope he's good. You know, you, know you, don't, you always hope that your heroes are going to continue being your heroes. After. Yeah, that's right. That's right. There's always that um, that moment of trepidation of should I actually do this or should I should I stay in my bubble here where you know it's yes. all good. Mm. Yes. I'm sure you'll. I'm sure it'll be lovely. Yes, I'm sure. And of course, I'm seeing uh, you know Leanne Moriarty and a whole bunch of other fantastic authors, both Australian and international. So I'm really looking forward to that. So I, it kind of does look like I'm going to have another busy week, but maybe just not so much cake. Yes, less cake. Mm. Not a bad thing. All right. Now, we have a shout-out to Mel Richards. So Mel has kindly left us a review on iTunes and has said, brilliant podcast. And Mel has said, these ladies are wonderful guides who provide really practical advice in this great podcast. As a person who has long wished to become a writer but often felt that opportunity was lost, this podcast is making me realise it's never too late to try. Thanks, ladies, for proving such a great resource to all aspiring writers and authors. Oh, oh well, wow. that's lovely. Thanks so much, yes. Mel. Yes, thank you, And Mel. it is never too late. Never ever. too late. That's and the beautiful thing about writing, you know. Yeah. You can yes. sit down and do it. It's never too late. <laughs> exactly. It doesn't rely on, you know, fast twitch muscles or anything no. like that. No. Thank mm. heavens because we'd be in trouble. <laughs> <laughs> and do go back to one of our podcasts where I think the lady was – in her, uh, I think her first book was in her sixties. Oh, um, and oh, she's right. now in her seventies. So, and, and still writing best-selling books. So, definitely go back. Was that and, Harriet? And listen to that was one. that Harriet? Yes, yes, that's right. Yes. Uh, well, well, the the book, the character's name was Harriet. I think. Oh, was it? 
She's, yeah. she's aren't we good? Listen to us. <laughs> I know. Stop, stop listening now, Mel, because otherwise you won't think quite so highly of us. Right? Yeah. <laughs> but Hester yeah, and go, Harriet. That's right. That's the book right. is called. Yes. Okay. Right. Oh, at least I got that. Like you were. Well, well even done. There. <laughs> <laughs> For me, she was the nice lady on the podcast before. Stop. All right. right. Stop right Thank- now. Let's move on. Yes, let's stop. Thank you so much, Mel. Really appreciate it. And if any other listeners have 30 seconds to leave us a review or rating on iTunes, we'd really appreciate it because it certainly helps us in the rankings. Now, shall we move on to the world of writing and publishing this week? Yes, I think that's probably oh, God, the time that, we did You that. weren't very keen to do that. <laughs> oh, sorry, I'm just I'm zoning out a little bit because of my very busy. It, it, I feel like don't you feel like sometimes when you've had a really really busy week, you've just kind of got a hangover for a few days afterwards. Just trying to find my zone again is not easy. But anyway, I yes. would love to talk about writing with you, Val. So let's do that. <laughs> Well, I found an interesting um, link on the website called Authors Publish, and it's by um, someone called Sheritha Singh, and it's called Three Different Types of Edits Writers Should Be Aware Of. Now, for those of you who've been writing for a while, you will know that there are three very distinct types of edits. But if you are relatively new to writing, you kind of might vaguely know or, or you've heard these terms, but you're not necessarily sure of where they fit in the process. And I think it's good just to spell it out because so for some people, it does take a long time to figure out that, that this is necessary because we often, I know you and I both meet people who they've written their manuscript and they've written their first draft and they go, oh, I just need an editor. And mm. all they're really looking for is a proofreader, you know, someone mm-hmm. to fix their typos and stuff like that, which of course is important. But in fact, that's the last edit you need. You actually need two other edits beforehand, generally, mm. especially in your first draft of your first manuscript. And this spells it out. And they call it content or developmental edits, but we often refer to that as structural editing. We do. And and you've recently gone through that process, Al, so maybe you can describe what a structural edit does. Oh, I have just gone through the process. And if you were on Facebook on Tuesday night (laughs) at about 11 o'clock, you will have caught me, you know, celebrating wildly because I had finally finished. So the structural edit is the, this is where your editor looks at the overall story. So this is not necessarily about how many times you use the word frown, which is what comes up for me in the proofread. Um, This is about, oh yeah, this is... (laughs) Honestly, my characters are so worried all the time. It's not funny, um, which has become a and, – and, and we're talking about six books worth here. So we, this has become a running joke with my oh. with my editor about oh, how funny. frowny they are. I know. It's hilarious. But anyway, okay. uh, so that's what we're talking about, the structural edit. So this is the kind of stuff is – have you started in the right place? Is the pacing of your book correct? Have you um, have you developed the characters to the point where the editor can understand why the character is even in the book, um, which I had not at one point? Have you um, have you got your you know is there a, a, de- a definite structure to your book? Have we do we have a climax? Is the is the actual story arc in the right place? Um, how uh, how how what's the kind of balance between dialogue description you know and how is that affecting the pace of the story it is a it's a really fundamental look 
at whether or not your story works as a story. And this is what makes it so painful. I mean, I know I bang on about this stuff. The copy edits for me are nothing. The proofread is like, okay, I've got to find another word for frown. But Mm. the structural edit is where you've really got to get to the, get to grips with the base of your story and make sure that, you know, the framework is, is strong, is solid and is holding your story up in all the right places. So it's um, it can be really hard, and this is where like mm. I, so I've just finished the structural edit. Um, I did end up lopping, I think, as we discussed last episode, about three and a half thousand words off the front. I just like removed an entire section of the book because I had started in the wrong place, and then it's a matter of well, what information is in that section that needs to go elsewhere? There were scenes that were deleted. There were scenes that were. Um, really bolstered because I had thrown them away. They were important. And I had just sort of like, um, in my haste to kind of get the story down, mm. I hadn't given enough information in those scenes that to, you know, to keep the story solid, particularly in the middle. Um, you mm. know, there was a, there was some sagging going on, shall we say. And right. my editor, my editor is so polite. She just comes back and she goes, I just feel like, you know, the mm. pacing's not quite right in some places. So can you have a look at X, Y, Z, you know, A, B, C, D, E, F, G, um, <laughs> which is what I did, which is what makes it so difficult because you are actually rethinking in places and mm. and sections of your story that you are absolutely wed to uh, as to how this is going to happen, you, you have to change the whole premise. Like you have to actually move things around to the point where maybe they don't go here, maybe they have to go there instead, you know, rethinking the story line so um yeah it can be difficult but that's a structural edit and to me that is the most difficult edit yeah right definitely especially if there's lots to change <laughs> yeah yeah and and you know what this when I'm talking to you about this um this mm. was not a, like I've had structural edits before where it was really seriously rethink the whole book this was you know this is a great manuscript but you could make this a lot better by tightening this up and it it takes an awful lot of thought and angst, but once you actually get into it, it's actually not that much. Like that was not a bad structural edit. I mean, I tend to angst over them a lot more than I probably should. Um, but they can be just, you know, they can actually be like, you need to rewrite the whole second half of this book, which I have never had to do, but I have had friends who have had to do. So, you know, all the ending is not working at all, Alison, you know, that kind of stuff. So Mm. think it, you know, it's, and it, 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 it takes a lot of – you get more professional at it, but it takes a lot of guts to take that on board Yes, and do, do the work that's required to make it yes. right. Yeah, And you're anyway. only going to improve if you do take that feedback on board. Absolutely. That's the mm. only way to improve. So anyway, so do you want to go on and describe the other two yes. types? Yes, all right. So um, the other two types – <laughs> the other two types of editing are line editing or copy editing, which effectively are interchangeable words. And that is where, unlike the structural edit, which is a very much a macro view, that is very much more micro. It's not quite proofreading, but it, it does look at sentence structure and, and the flow and word choice like the word frown or whether, <laughs> or, you know, whether the dialogue is too repetitive or whether we can understand who's saying what in the dialogue. So it is called line editing because it's effectively done line by line. And But it's the step, the important thing to remember is that it's the step before proofreading because once you make those line edits, you're still going to make those changes and tweaks and that sort of thing. And then you need to kind of like 
read through the entire manuscript again to make sure it flows and make sure that the line edits haven't stuffed anything up because the final type of editing, the third editing, is proofreading and Mm -hmm. that is literally typos, punctuation, you know, words that are wonky or spelt wrong or or misused, whatever. Um, So that... That no longer changes any of the meaning or any of the structure or any of the the actual uh, sentence flow. It looks up. It, it, it looks at all those small little things that give that final polish to your work. So very important. Your structural edit, also known as content or deve- developmental edits. Your line editing or copy editing is the second one, and then your proofreading is the third one. And I think it's worth noting too that. Um you know, authors are involved in every single every single um, stage of this. So you're like, you get a copy edit. The copy edit is like so. You're doing the structural edit, goes back to the publisher, then it's handed on to a, a copy editor who goes through and does a copy edit, and then it is sent to you, and you go through the whole thing again, and you have to decide which of those changes you're going to take in and which you are not. And yeah. if you are not going to take them in, you have to have a reason as to why you are not. So you need to actually be, you know, you're writing on the manuscript. This is why I am not doing this or you tick and say yes this is what I am going to do yes whatever and then when the proofreading comes it is proofread by a proofreader but at the same time it is proofread by you Um, so you are doing a proof as well like this is why I'm saying you know you've got to really like your story because you are going to see it so many times Um, so you're doing a proofread as well and the other thing worth noting with a proofread too is that you know this is minimal edits like this is not where you go oh I need to remove chapter three like all of that work needs to have been done this is literally, you know, commas and 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 um, typos and that kind of stuff, you know. And if any mistakes have come into it during during yes. the copy edit, which can happen sometimes. Um, so yeah, yes. but, you know, you're there for all of this stuff. So you need to. So when you're when they send you through the schedule of you know the of the stages of production, you need to be aware that you're going to get that back, and you're going to need to allow time to do X, Y, Z edit as you go through. Yeah, very, very important. Sometimes mistakes do creep in because I think I mentioned to you that I was quoted in a book once, a book that came out last year, I think, and um, it was Valerie Koo says this, Valerie says this, Valerie says this, and then somehow it became Darren says this, but it was still referring to me. <laughs> I don't know how you get Darren from oh, Valerie. Oh, Darren. I, I feel like we should take this on board. It's like a secret name. Darren. And no one picked it up in any. Well, you know, that's, and that's, this is some of the trouble too, because you know, by the time you've looked at this thing a few times, you know, because you've often done your own drafts, and then it's you know, it comes back, and sometimes a structural edit will be not just once, but maybe it'll come back to you again, and you know, it's sometimes it takes a couple of times to get it right, and then it goes off to copy edit. So by the time you've seen it that many times, you really like you really have to do your proofread very carefully and it's mm. it's like you know we learn to do I do mine on paper with a a, sh- a sheet of blank paper under mm. every line so I'm looking at every line on its own and that, that's mm. the only way to do it as far as I'm concerned and because it's in print and not going on a website you can't change it like at all <laughs> no you can't no <laughs> all you can do is make a note I, I still get I do there's a cut there are two typos in the first book of the Mapmaker Chronicles and I have these fantastic uh, young readers you know 10 and 12 year olds who every once in a while I'll get an email just letting me know that it's there <laughs> you know once the when uh, Tim Ferriss who of course famously wrote the four-hour work week and he followed that up with another best-selling book called 
called the Four Hour Body. Anyway, yes. it was uh, it's released in America under the publisher, and the same publisher releases it in Australia. But in Australia, when they release the Australian edition, because of course they need to change pounds to kilograms. And yeah. things like that because it is yeah. and it does mention it, it is metric in Australia and of course being it's the four hour body it's essentially a diet book and you know diet and fitness and stuff so there are a lot of references to pounds and kilos and and different types of food and what they had done was they had transposed a table which we, a table that indicated these are kind of vegetables you can eat these are kinds of proteins you can eat these are kind of carb what are considered carbohydrates right yeah and they when they published the australian edition whoever was responsible for that they transposed the table wrongly so carbohydrates all the carbohydrates like were listed under proteins yeah so and you're not actually meant to eat many many carbohydrates you're meant to eat a lot of proteins so there would be a hell a lot of people getting fat oh Oops. And, um, yeah, it was kind of ridiculous because I'm saying, it, I'm sure we're not meant to eat, like, so much of this kind of stuff. <laughs> oh, dear. Anyway, I highlighted it and sent it to Tim Ferriss and he very kindly sent me a present. Oh, that was very <laughs> sweet of him. Thank you. Yes. Uh, but it, it can happen even just because even if the spelling is right, something else might be wrong. That's right. Even in a major publisher with a major author. All right, let's move on to, so one of the things that you said was when you got feedback in your structural edit was that they also asked you, you know, why is that character even in the book? Why is the character even there, right? A, yeah. a particular character. And that uh, made me think of a link um, that I read this week also from M.L. Keller, the manuscript shredder. Oh. And M.L. Keller has written a post called Give Your Scenes a Purpose with mm. Scene Goals. And that's the Mm. same thing, right? Your character needs a purpose, but each of your scenes also need a purpose because you and I both know writers who just write beautiful imagery and just have this incredible skill to, you know, write about a cup of tea and it's just a stunning sentence, which is great and that's a fantastic skill to have. But if you're writing an entire story, your scenes actually need to go somewhere. They can't just be there for pretty you know, for prettiness. And so one of the things that this post is saying is that your goals need a scene and your scene goals need to give your characters a reason to exist. So one of the things that this post says is that you should ask, first of all, question one, what does he or she, your character, want or need? And then what stands in his or her way But then how do we reveal that conflict? How do you actually explain what stands in their way without just simply telling somebody? You actually need to show it, right? Mm. And then it says, now add emotion to the scene, which is, of course, really important. And then it says, where are we going? So what's, what's happening next? And I think that that's actually a really good list of questions to ask yourself in each scene to mm. make sure that your scene is actually well-rounded and adds value to your story. What do you think? I mean, you probably do this instinctively without necessarily having to ask the question each time. I think so. Because mm. I, I mean, I think it's just that whole sense of. I, for me, the most important question with any scene is. So when I when I'm actually just writing the first draft, I I just write 
I just write it as it comes out of my head. Like I'm just yeah. basically like throwing it out onto the page to see what happens. Um, but I think what happens with the editing process is I actually go back and it's a question of what is the point of this scene? Why is it in the book? And I think mm. that's kind of my main question. So I think that kind of sums up all of the questions that you've um, given here. Because if you have a scene that you've written just because, you know, you liked it, which is, you know, we, we all do that. Like I, the opening scene, for for instance, of um, the Adaban Cipher 2, which I've just completely removed, um, mm. was something that I really loved. Like I, I liked the way it showed character. I liked the kind of humour in it. There was a whole lot of stuff I liked about it. Um, but then I realised that once I came back to the to the manuscript for the, you know, for the edit, I realised I just don't, I didn't need it. Like mm. all I was using it for was essentially to kind of, amuse myself and to impart information, which is fine, you know, particularly when you, I often write my way into a story. So, you know, it was, it was a good way for me to kind of, you know, just remember who everyone was and get myself back in the zone and do all that sort of Mm. stuff. And it was, you know, it had some lovely, lovely humor in it that I really, really liked. But at the end of the day, I didn't need the scene. I actually needed to start the book somewhere else. So that's what happened. I just removed it. So it is, it is, does come back to that question of, you know, what is the point of this scene? And I realized that the point of it was to impart information that I could put elsewhere so I removed it and when you removed it did you come to that conclusion yourself or was that feedback from someone no well it was feedback I mean I knew it was wrong (laughs) I knew it was wrong myself because I was also like I I had sent the the manuscript to my editor and she was reading it at the same time as I was and I was reading it out loud to to my son my youngest son and even as I was reading it I was thinking to myself I there's too much backstory here you know this Mm. is this is me setting the book up but I it does it wasn't necessary so what I did was I took it off removed it put that scene into a separate document and then made sure as I worked my way through the next couple of chapters, I made sure that the information that I needed from that scene, and mm. there was some hardcore information that was really important, it, it did need to be in the book, um, that that information was put in in natural places elsewhere. So that's, mm. you know, and delete, you know, so I was like making sure that I knew exactly what I, what points I was requiring. But yeah, it's, you know, it's practice as much as anything. You sort of learn as you go. Um, yeah. You know, the scene, you, every scene has to move the story forward. And if the, if the scene is not moving the story forward, then you don't need the scene. Yeah, no matter how no matter beautifully how pretty it's written. it is. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Fantastic. Or well, how we'll, hilarious as the case yeah. Yes, that can happen too. So we will put all we we'll put we'll put this link in the show notes, and you can find all of the show notes uh, to every episode at so you want to be a writer Now, I thought we'd move on to quite a different thing, a different link, and it's from a site called Discover Science for the Curious, and I just thought it were it just amused me because it is called. A paper about plagiarism contains plagiarism. Oh, oops. (laughs) It's quite hilarious, actually. And again, we'll put the link in the show notes. But basically, this uh, writer who has an interest in plagiarism discovered an amusing case of plagiarism in a paper about plagiarism. So the paper is actually called um, The Confounding Factors Leading to Plagiarism in Academic Writing and Some Suggested Remedies. 
and it appeared um, in a journal, a medical journal, and it's written by two Saudi Arabian-based authors. And uh, <laughs> they, um, the, the, the writer of this particular post has done some screenshots where they've highlighted in yellow exact uh, overlaps and then they've highlighted in red where a synonym has been used. And ah. it's basically a massive colour, like mm-hmm. 80% of it has been plagiarised. So it's kind of ridiculous and I just it just brought a, a giggle to, uh, to me when I read this because um, it, the irony is ridiculous. <laughs> it is. It is. And it's just the kind of thing that would have amused you, Val. <laughs> yes. I still find it confounding that people even do plagiarism. Like I don't see why anyone would think that they would not get caught out, especially if they're high profile, which uh, there are many incidents, several instances we can think of, of um, high profile writers who have plagiarised. It's like seriously with the internet these days is if people aren't going to know. Mm. Anyway, mm-hmm. we'll put that link in the show notes as well. So you want to be a writer.com.au in case you are interested. So now let's move on to uh, what, what are we moving on to? We're moving on to our giveaway this week. Ooh. So our giveaway, we have 10 double passes to the film Neruda, that's N-E-R-U-D-A, to give away thanks to Palace Films. Um, Neruda is nominated for 2017 Golden Globes Best Foreign Language Film and has been described as a glorious mix of history and imagination and entertaining depiction of the manhunt for exiled Chilean poet and politician Pablo Neruda. So a wonderful film about a poet. Now, the film was released on the 25th of May and you can win one of 10 double passes. All you need to do is go to writerscentre.com.au slash win and uh, entries close on the 29th of May. Now, if you go to that URL in the future, don't worry, there'll be some other competition there. They'll be just as exciting. But in the meantime, go see this movie and... uh, Go into the competition to win one of 10 double passes at writerscentre.com.au slash win. This podcast is brought to you by the Australian Writers' Centre, a world leader in writing courses. Our course, Inside Publishing, gives you a peek inside the complex world of publishing. Created by author of more than 30 books, Pamela Freeman, who also writes as Pamela Hart, the course gives you a step-by-step guide on everything you need to know about the publishing process and how this should affect your writing, pitching and submissions. It's essential information if you want to navigate the publishing world and get the best chance for your book success. You'll learn about the copyright issues that will affect you, what territories you need to negotiate for, and how ebooks and audiobooks will impact your income. You'll also discover whether indie publishing or traditional publishing is better for your goals. With our on demand courses, you can learn in your own time with 12 months access to all course materials. Find out more at writerscentre.com.au/slash publishing. All right, are we ready for the word of the week, Al? So ready, Val. So ready. Have you braced. heard of this? I'm braced. 
Okay, have you heard of this? Farago, not the Tarago the car, but mm-hmm. Farago, F for Fred, A-R-R-A-G-O, Farago. Uh, no, it sounds like it could be like a super bean food, you know, like a oh, frica yeah. or a chia yeah, right. or something. Is it? Like Is quinoa. It? A quinoa, exactly. <laughs> Is it a quinoa? No, not really. Oh, it's, okay. It comes from <laughs> – and it's not a car either. Oh, okay. It also sounds like it could be a car. This comes from the Latin meaning cattle feed. And according to the Macquarie Dictionary, it means a confused mixture, a hodgepodge. So you might say the police were fed with a farrago of lies from the mafia family members. Farrago? Yes. Hmm. I have not used it Do you think that's where they got the name of that TV series, Fargo, from? Do you think it's kind of like – because it's kind of a confused mixture, a hodgepodge, isn't it? Yeah. No, Fargo's like a city. In oh, Minnesota, I think so. Is that so. why they called it? Was that why it was called Fargo? <laughs> I'm pretty sure. Yes. I don't watch it. So I don't know. <laughs> oh, no, no. So was the original one in Fargo? Was it the original yes. movie was actually yes. set in Fargo? I but believe you, you, you so. You have to admit it kind of works. With yeah, it, 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 it does. Yes, it's yeah. They talk funny in Fargo. Maybe I'm reading too much into it. All right, I'm yes. happy to be wrong. Let's move on. all right so see if you can use that word in a post or or um, use the word of the week in either your social media or a blog post and do ping us and let us know we'd love to know all right so are we ready for i'm feeling like this podcast episode is perhaps it's a a bit of a farrago yeah it is (laughs) sorry everyone anyway (laughs) let's move on let's move on so um Are we ready for our writer-in-residence this week? Yes, we're so ready. So ready. Okay, so our writer-in-residence this week is Genevieve Chang, and she has recently released a memoir called The Good Girl of Chinatown. Now, Genevieve Chang is an actor and writer, and she she describes herself as a recovering showgirl. And (laughs) after training in London, so she is, she's she's Australian, uh, but after training in London for a period, she then lived in Shanghai, and she became part of China's first, vaudeville variety and burlesque club called Chinatown. So after she came back to Australia, she's worked at NIDA and um, done various performances and uh, recently um, was involved in the stage stage adaptation of Mao's Last Dancer. But somewhere along the line, she decided to put pen to paper and write this memoir, The Good Girl of Chinatown. Thanks so much for joining us today, Genevieve. It's a pleasure to be here. Now, your book, The Good Girl of Chinatown, uh, published by Penguin. Uh, For the readers who haven't read the book yet, can you tell us what it's about? Uh, Sure. So it is a family memoir. It traces very explicitly my personal history working as an actor and a dancer and then deciding to moved to London as a young adult after growing up in Australia, training as a dancer there, falling in love with uh, my yoga teacher, subsequently (laughs) marrying him, and then us moving to China in Shanghai specifically. When we get to Shanghai, however, our marriage hits the rocks and 
we um, we decide to part ways, and then that leaves me quite vulnerable and open to the advances of a New York Bordevillian who's come <laughs> to China intent on opening up the country's first Bordeville variety and burlesque club. And I become one of the starring showgirls at this club known as a Chinatown doll. So that is the top layer of the narrative. But um, in the writing of the story, I found I kept – you know, just thinking about cause and effect and why we do things the way that we do and why we do those things, my um, mind kept sp- uh, skipping back to my family history, my parents' yeah. story and my grandparents' story, um, specifically my grandparents leaving China 60 years before I had gone to China and what mm. that was about. And so uh, what ended up happening over the five years of writing the book is that I've integrated three narratives of um, the three generations and how our paths connect with each other's. Yeah, fantastic. Now, when and why did you s- decide to write a memoir? Because as you said, you're, a, you're an actor and a dancer uh, you 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 didn't train as a writer necessarily, but although let me say it is a beautifully well written book. But what Thank made you. you want to write the book? <laughs> yeah, you know a lot of things were happening to me as a child, and I remember being I was a very bookish child actually. I used to just devour books, mm. and um, even as a young girl when I was putting on shows, I always wrote those shows. Um. And, you know, as destiny would have it, I pursued the performing arts first. Um, And I probably wouldn't have even thought about coming back to writing if I hadn't returned to Australia when I did. And, you know, in the social media age, people had followed my journey and what had happened in China. Mm. And, um, And I met a literary agent upon my return who was really interested in my story and asked me if I might be interested in writing a book. And, you know, it took me by surprise, but I thought I'd give it a go. (laughs) Why not? You know, (laughs) Um, I'm a pretty, um, yeah, I'm a bit of a risk risk taker and, um, you know, I didn't want to, I just thought there's nothing to lose. I might fail, but I've never been a writer anyway. So I just started along this journey of um, penning my memories down. And then it just deepened and deepened and I made more and more progress. And then uh, Penguin came on board about three years into the process. Mm. Uh, I was also performing a storytelling show. So it just so happened coincidentally that in 2013 I was part of Sydney Writers Festival, a storytelling show called Stories Then and Now with a company now called Contemporary Asian Australian Performance with William Yang and Annette Xinhua. And um, that show was about the performers talking autobiographically, first through their family history, then through their contemporary history. So I got really used to um, talking and performing in a very personal way, words that I wrote uh, to perform. And then that all informed the process and brought about this book. So you said that, you know, you didn't have the experience. You just thought, what if I got to lose? I'm going to start writing this book. Mm-hmm. Your book, uh, but can you tell us on a practical level, did mm. you 
think, oh, I'm going to write it chronologically from this point? Did you just write bits and pieces and then put it all together later? Did you, you know, how did you actually start putting those words on paper to form what ended up being a great structure and it is multi-layered, but you had to start somewhere. Like, you you know, how did you get it out? Yeah, well, you know, I really have to um, – I really have to credit my literary agent with being a real nurturer from the very beginning. I mean, at our first meeting, I pretty much sat down and told him my story and I was still very raw with what happened. It was quite traumatic, a lot of the events. Mm-hmm. And um, and it was at that point that the idea came that I should start when I've hit rock bottom, mm-hmm. you know, the most dramatic part of the story personally. Yeah. Um, and, and it hooks so, you in. <laughs> yeah. And I knew exactly what that point was, you know, the rock bottom point when I decided to actually come home. So that was always a given. But I have to say, like, at the very beginning, the first draft, I did think that I was writing a little bit of a, you know, possibly a showgirl expose, if you like. I mean, yes, it was a very exotic adventure. Uh, going to China and then accidentally becoming this showgirl in this, you know, quite scintillating underground world. Um, And so, you know, the first flashback was how I got to China. And so the first draft was very much, um, you know, of the contemporary voice and still quite a dizzy uh, contemporary voice. Like I still very much had my showgirl persona, Lavender Chase, almost being like the narrative voice. Um, But then doing the storytelling show and then wanting to, I don't know, I just got a sense, you know, during this first draft that that wasn't really the story, Mm. you know, that there was much more depth and, you know, I had this great opportunity to to write a book about my history, and actually, the process of writing is trying to understand yourself. No, and so I decided to somewhere between the first and second draft to take that real risk of bringing this other story in of my grandparents and my parents. Um, it was still quite, but I, yeah, it was still quite. I don't know. Uh, it, it didn't have the structure that it eventually did. Like I was randomly ordering um, the three narratives. I was kind of just driven by the desire to tell these other stories, but I hadn't quite figured out how I was, I was going to thread everything together. Mm-hmm. And it wasn't until the third draft, um, you know, that I was really able to identify the dominant theme of running away that mm-hmm. informs all three stories. And then once that happened, um, I was able to link the past and the present in a much more explicit way. And the story just began to tell itself and actually not just the three narratives, but all the characters in my book began to, you know, I began to see how we were all cut from the same cloth. Actually, we were all running away from something and um, that really was able to inform me through the process and allow me to make the choices that I made. I mean, mm-hmm. I still don't know whether – I mean, it's still quite a complex uh, thread and I, and I feel like I'm asking quite a lot of the reader to stay with it sometimes. Um, but I think given the ambition that I had for the book, um, you know, the, the right choices, you know, I still stand by the choices that I made. 
Yes. Now, when I first heard of the book, and I didn't really know anything much about it, but when I first heard of it, I did kind of think um, those words that you just said, a showgirl expose, and I thought, "Mm, mm," you know, but it is so much more than a showgirl expose. And you've got this multi-layered thing where you have, as you've mentioned, talked about your parents and your grandparents. How much did you know of their story, your parents and your grandparents, particularly your grandparents, I mean, because your parents are, you know, more around obviously. Um, Mm. How much did you know of their story and how much did you have to kind of like – for the first time, maybe even get it out of them or interview them or or, mm. or somehow get it down on paper or recorded. Tell me about yeah. that. I knew pretty much the entire story. I grew up with my grandparents in the same house and so their story was always very much the lived experience of growing up as uh, with them being my guardians, really. I mean, my parents worked a lot. And so I was very close and being the eldest, I was very close to my grandparents. And it wasn't as if they talked about, you know, their story as if this is what we've sacrificed to be here and you must be grateful. It was never like that. It was much more kind of a romantic yearning of what had been left behind. And, you know, there were very sad parts. I mean, the fact that my grandfather had to leave his 70-year-old daughter behind Mm. was, you know, just uh, extremely painful. And you know, he didn't go into it in detail. I don't think he wanted to ever cry in front of us. But I always grew up with a sense of this massive grief and guilt um, that surrounded him. And so, you know, there was always this, this question, this unresolved tension um, around around me being in the world because, mm. uh, you know, if I wouldn't exist, if if he hadn't left that daughter behind, possibly, I mean, mm. you know, quite probably the family wouldn't have survived. Um, my grandfather was a nationalist official. So the thing is, if he hadn't left when he had left, he would very probably have been executed. And mm. that would have been that. Mm. So they were obviously very open with t- talking about their stories. It's not something that you needed to discover later because, I mean, I, my grandparents, I practically grew up in their house because my parents mm. worked and stuff and I'm very close to my grandmother, but she doesn't, she's not forthcom- necessarily forthcoming with her stories. So mm. were, was it something that's just uh, you, you always knew as you were growing up? They, they happily talked yeah. about everything. Well, yeah, like... Not not happily, but it was just there. It was just part of the family. It was just part of our yeah. uh, collective knowledge as a family that this is what happened, um, you know, the deaths that occurred, the, the tragedy that led to, I mean, even my parents' meeting was due to a death in the family. Um, I was born being told that, this is a bit of a spoiler, but anyway. No, don't was, say it. Don't say it. Don't oh, okay. Say it, don't say it. Don't, don't, don't want to. I'll ask a different question. Yeah. So, uh, you 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 know you write a little bit. You you write about your parents and how they've got certain strict views on things or set views on things and yeah. and and about how um you know you needed to win the particular contest or or whatever or they were cranky. Now, mm. uh, um. When you then decided to go into the performing arts um, and and then decide to tell them, hey, I'm going to write this book, 
that is about our family and our life. (laughs) What was their reaction? Yeah, I mean, it's so interesting. Um, I suppose one of the things I'm interested in is the relationship between repression and rebellion, Mm. the proportionate relationship between repression and rebellion. And, yes, I grew up in a very repressive household. And so, you know, that was kind of interesting. I wanted to talk about that actually, um, you know, and, and tracing back to, you know, the apparent wildness of becoming a showgirl um, mm. and, you know, the, and therefore I suppose linking that to the consequences of, of repression. Um, and so I feel like by the time I got to the point where I decided I was going to write a book, <laughs> um, my parents kind of really took it in their stride. They were so used to me not being the daughter that they expected me to be. I had rebelled in pretty much every which way that this didn't surprise them. And, um, and actually they've been, uh, really very supportive in me writing this book. And, um, that's not to say that they've read it (laughs) or even want to read it. I think they've absolutely been given the opportunity to read it. Um, but they have said no. Uh, my dad wow. did say at the, uh, you know, somewhere during the process, he gave me the permission explicitly. He said, you can write whatever you want about me. I just don't want you to write anything you want about your brother and your sister. Like he has some very specific, mm. specific parameters. And I respected that, especially the fact that he allowed me to write whatever I wanted about him. Um, and actually writing the book has been building a bridge between me and him in a way. I mean, he has been really, I think, heartened by the fact that I want to tell our family stories. I mean, my grandparents' stories, which have been so important in our family, mm. And, and his story as well, like me sitting down. I mean, I obviously take leaps of imagination because by the third mm. draft, I had made the decision that I wanted to write um, my grandparents, my parents' narratives from their point of view rather than, you know, from a distance. That for me felt much more satisfying and and right. And so I have to, you know, I, I have to write as if, I'm my father seeing my mother for the first time. I'm my father feeling the pressure of having to move to the West so that we're not vulnerable to China in case they invite Bay to Taiwan. So I had to sit down and ask him, okay, so what was it like? How did you feel? You know, why did you decide to do that at that point in time? And so, you know, it's really opened up a conversation between the two of us and he's been um, much more open than I expected. Um, having said that, ever since the book has been published, um, I think he's actually freaked out again. I think the reality <laughs> of having a tangible book um, yeah. and wondering what exactly I did decide to put in there has freaked him out, yeah. Yeah, right, okay. So when you um, were in the process of writing it, uh was it a cathartic experience? Was it an enjoyable experience? Was it a painful experience? What was it like for you? Or did you just have fun? Yeah. Um, gosh, sometimes I, I had fun, but that was definitely <laughs> um, balanced by painful catharsis. I only had fun when um, when I 
felt like I'd been given the license to start making creative choices with the story, that I didn't have to be slavish with, um, you know, facts. And and I'll get to that in a little bit. But Mm. um, I feel like the first... The first draft was very hard. I mean, I was battling a lot of insecurities about mm. whether I could write or not. And mm. I was still quite beholden to this persona that I had inhabited for so long, you know, this showgirl called Lavender Chase. And so, you know, personally, I was trying to extricate myself from that. But, um, you know, kind of creatively, she was still very much there. And I had to kind of battle with that and how useful that was. Um, and then uh, the the second draft, I felt a huge burden of responsibility, you know, because now I was telling my family stories. And, mm. um, and then I had to battle like a lot of fear as well um, about, about not just uh, remembering those things and sharing those things, but how, you know, mm. I was going to, to share those things because I still had a lot of unresolved anger. Um, mm. because some of the things that happened were really awful. And I, and I was conscious that sometimes when I was writing, it was a bit vindictive. I just wanted to go, <laughs> now I'll show you <gasps> tell the whole world how awful it was, which is like not a very helpful, constructive angle to take. Yeah. And then by the third draft, I think I just worked through a lot more issues and I was mm. able to have more fun with it. Like I was treating myself more as a character and everyone as characters and I was much more focused on telling a good story you know and so there were you know as I became more confident with the craft um and more creative and allowed myself to be more creative and uh, there was that distancing effect that's when I started to have fun and that's when it started to flow a little bit more and also like I'd I was able to write much more empathetically you know and I think I decided to I mean, I made a very specific choice to put myself in my father's shoes in the writing of it because I wanted to Mm. understand, you know, I didn't want to write about him as this person who kind of became a bit of a monster (laughs) in my (laughs) consciousness. And I, you know, he's a human being, like he's my father. Mm. And so he's writing as a way to really understand things from his point of view and Mm. how I might've looked as I grew into, you know, this adored child into this angry, rebellious teenager, into this you know, adult that he could he couldn't control and and, and hated him. So I, I just really wanted to be three dimensional with it. Mm. Yeah. Wow. Now, when you you said that this has kind of taken a course of five years, presumably there's a bit of on and off writing in that five years. Um, when you were in the throes of writing, what? was your typical day like? Did you decide, okay, I'm going to write this now and I'm going to dedicate my full time to it? Or did you write it around another commitment or, um, or what? Yeah. Um, yeah, no, that's a great question about process. I've been thinking about that a lot. Um, so I initially had to work around a full-time job. So it was around another very heavy commitment. It was, and it was quite a stressful job, but I stayed very disciplined. So I had a very strict routine. I would wake up at five 30 every morning and I would, 
I know. And I'm not a morning person, but I yeah. willed myself to be. I summoned up all the dancers' discipline from years past. I was like, I can do this. I can do this for writing. And um, I would bang out two hours before going to work and taking on those responsibilities, and I'd write on the weekends. But, you know, um, those drafts I've churned out in, in the four years um, – that I had to work around that. I mean, they were they, they were hard, and sometimes, very very occasionally, I come up with something good. I think, um, but it was only when I resigned from that job and I actually returned back to being a performer. Right. So I returned to the stage last year, and it was a six month tour across Australia, and I found myself in very quiet quiet motel rooms in the middle of nowhere for stretches of time. And I think it was, you know, um, me living a creative life again and also like really right. connecting with the human condition that yeah. it brought me to a much deeper place in my writing as well. I really had a knock-on effect to my writing. Like, wow. you know, I was, I was able to be vulnerable again. Um, yeah. So, you know, the two processes really partnered up and, and, and danced, um, which I'm so grateful for because if that hadn't happened, I think I'd still be, you know, telling quite a stilted story that never reached its full potential. I mean, you know, even now I'm like, oh, I could have held on to it for a bit longer, but you got to let it go when you let it go. Yeah. But certainly I think the first two drafts, you know, didn't have the benefit of uh, me being able to be creative full time. And I think, you know, that's something to really take away from it. I mean, obviously we don't all have that advantage and I just happen to be very lucky, but I learned a lot, you know, um, about how, yeah, one creative process really informs and influences another. Did you, when you were writing your first draft or, or you know, your several drafts, did you have some kind of time a deadline or, or and and did you try and sort of even though you did have that full-time job but you were so committed you'd wake up at 5 30 uh did mm. you try and achieve a certain number of words per week or anything like that did you have some you know goals yeah um I, I certainly had like time deadlines to meet I don't know if I was ever slavish to word counts um but look Probably, probably something like two thousand words a week that I was happy with. If I reached right. that, that was a you know productive week. Yeah, yeah, that's pretty good. That's pretty good. And so, what? Um, uh, uh, when the you finished, mm. what has been? Well, what, since the book has been released, what has been the reaction from? people that you know from your family from just readers generally as well yeah um, everyone wants to know what does my family think and um <laughs> yeah uh-huh <laughs> they haven't read it yet your mum and dad haven't yeah. read it yet well my mum and dad haven't read it yet my mother bless her has ordered like a whole bunch of copies that she wants to send to relatives and oh. I'm like oh my goodness you just like, you have to read it first mom. yeah I think so <laughs> oh my goodness um, but, uh, yes, so it's only been out for a week and, uh, we only launched about four days ago. So it's been a very exciting time. Um, so no one from my direct family has, has read it. My sister had read early drafts, mm -hmm. um, and actually it was her, uh, she gave me really great feedback at the beginning. I think it might've been the second draft. 
And she said, mm, I'm not really getting a sense of how you're feeling about things. Right. You're certainly writing, um, you know, lots of action and this is what mm. happened. But, mm. you know, I think you need to go a little bit, you have to tell the reader how you feel about things more. Like, Great. And, you know, it, and it was very true. Like there was a lot of dodging from my um, from my emotions in those early drafts. Like I just – I was I was uh, committed to telling a story, but I hadn't quite committed to um, opening my vulnerabilities up. Um, but no one from my immediate family has read it. My my grandmother, who's a hundred and two. Oh my god! Uh, I know. So she's still alive. Mm. And um, actually, I, as soon as the uncorrected proof was out, I took it over to her. She lives with my dad, mm. and um, and I asked him at that point would you be able to sit down with me and translate um, the parts of the story that she's in so that she can read it? I mean, she's 95% deaf now. Wow. Um, and, you know, she she's reading English is kind of beyond her comprehension mm. these days. Um, and that's when he freaked out, actually, and saw the book and was just like, you know, completely... <laughs> Um, yeah, through a conniption and wasn't able to deal with it. So um, that hasn't happened, but I have heard from some readers. Um, I think there's only been like a couple, maybe a handful have read the whole thing and they've been extremely positive and encouraging. Um, so that's been, that's been lovely. Um, uh, and in terms of other people who have, bought the book in the last week I'm just getting little updates that they're halfway through it and yeah, right. they can't put it down and so yes. I'm getting a lot of um I'm getting a lot of validation but I'm also Great. really interested in hearing people um yeah give me constructive feedback as well yeah well I guess it's early days but it's it's definitely a winner now what uh, has it given you the taste oh, are you writing another book I am. What, are you, what are you doing now? Oh, tell us about that. <laughs> uh, well, it's so in its um, early stages. I'm just gestating this idea, um, but I, I'm not really ready to talk about it yet. It's, <laughs> it's, but it's a China story uh, again. I'm just mm -hmm. really fascinated by contemporary China and the stories there, and I'm kind of filled with inspiration every time I, I go. So there's something in that for me, that area. Mm -hmm. um, I'm at the moment trying to decide whether it's going to be a script or a book, though, um, and that's something I'll start speaking to people about in the next little while as I, uh, yeah, try to expand on what the storyline could be. So if it's gestating at the moment, are you, how, what do you tell people when pe people say, what do you do? Like, what, yeah. what do you do? <laughs> <laughs> um, I'm certainly taking it one day at a time. Um, mm -hmm. But at the moment, I am a full-time writer and actor. And, yes, it's, it's your question, going back to your question, has it given me a taste? Absolutely. I mean, the essence of who I am is a storyteller. Mm. Um, and, you know, that's always been what I have been, irrespective of whether that's been through movement or dance or theater or screen or writing. Um, but uh, I guess actually someone asked me if I still danced very recently and I do recreationally and certainly if it's tied to a story like last year, I, the show that I did was Mao's last dancer. 
mm-hmm. called um, The Peasant Prince. Mm-hmm. Um, but what I'm really loving post-showgirl life is having a voice, you know. Um, dancing's like been great and I love the art form, but what's really thrilling for me be becoming a writer is just having an unadulterated voice, personal voice, um, about my experiences and, and what I see. Too often dancers are treated um, in a way that, you know, they're only meant to be seen and not heard. Mm. Um, and that's certainly a lot of the difficulties I experienced as a showgirl um, and, well, just generally as a dancer. So I'm just really embracing the fact that I've been given a very um, – I'm very lucky I've been given this platform where it is purely about my voice and my mm. experience and how I uh, create something out of that. Wonderful. And on that note, thank you so much for your time today, Genevieve. Thank you so much. There you go, Genevieve Chang. Fantastic interview. Did you actually enjoy the book? I did. I did. I have to admit that, um, you know, if I saw it in the bookshop, because uh, one of the things, as you may remember, she said uh, she didn't want it to be a showgirl expose, you know, mm, yep. which is, or, 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 or rather it sort of started out kind of maybe being a showgirl expose and, you know, it's, it's, and it, it, it is much more than that. And I guess I think that if I was in the bookshop and I saw this in the bookshop, it's a very striking cover. I mean, it's, yeah, it's yeah. very, very good. Um, and I don't actually, know, I'm, I'm, Put it this way, I'm really glad I read it because I think it's very, very good. Yeah. Um, but I think that the cover does look a little bit Shergill expose, if you want to make Oh, okay, me. yeah. And I just felt that if I chose the cover, I might have just made it a little bit different. But um, I want people who may have that reaction that I did uh, to look past that because it is way more than, than a Shergill expose. So, mm, okay. Um, yeah, so it was good. Oh, it was great. I mean, to to chat to Jennifer about it, Genevieve about it. Sorry. All right. Uh, let us move on Let's. to. Um, oh yes. Now we're going to talk about something because you did a talk this week, didn't you? Yes. Well, we talked about that. So I went to the CBCA uh, branch meeting and yes. I did a quick presentation. Like I had only half an hour in which to cover. You know, my life, my books, my dog, my children, because clearly all of those things are essential. And then also to fill in my top five tips for building your author platform. So I thought maybe we could just have a little chat about those top five tips, um, because obviously, you know, there's a full course on this. So it's incredibly difficult to actually, you know, get all of that into, as I said, the very short um, I was talking so fast, Val. Like, honestly, <laughs> I said to them before I started, I was like, we've only got a short space of time here. People prepare yourselves for a torrent of words. And there was just like this whoomp off I went. Um, wow. But I thought we would just um, have a bit of a chat about the top five tips because I thought they're quite useful. And, I mean, we do talk about them regularly, but it never hurts to um, reiterate. Yes. Um, a, the importance of building your author platform, but also B, sort of, you know, the the essential things um, that you need to do to actually do that. So my first tip was to um, was to stake a claim on the internet, which of course is to create a website. Now this um, 
this goes in lots of different directions that we do explore within the uh, within the course, Build Your Author Platform. Um, but I think the most essential thing that every author can probably do, no matter where they're at with their with their actual writing career, is first of all to um, secure your URL, secure your website name. Um, we talked in the past about authors that we know, high-profile authors who don't own their own mm. name as a website mm. name. So, mm. you know, if you are working on your manuscript and even if you're thinking it's years and years away, you know, at least secure your URL, get your get your website name together. Um, the domain name, that's the word I want, isn't it? That's what we need to do. Uh, so secure your domain name and also at that point I would also secure your social media handles as well so that you don't end up as I did if you build it organically where you're, you know, Al Tate on one on Twitter and then you're Alison mm. Tate writer elsewhere. And mm. um, so, yeah, that was my first tip was to stake a claim, get yourself a basic website. You know, people will Google you, give them something to find. Um, we discussed the whole do I need a blog question, mm. which, as you know, is a massively large question to cover in five minutes. But um, mm. I, I went through some pros and cons. I, I you know, I still think uh, blogging is a very useful thing for authors who are creating communities um, and, you know, a very useful thing for uh, Google because, you know, it gives you fresh content on your website all the time, which keeps your website fresh mm. um, for search, which is a great thing. Uh, but, it, you know, there are pros and cons to it and we do discuss those in the author platform and I think it's up to every author to make their own decision about that. So that was tip one. Uh, tip two was to get social um, and by that I'd simply mean, you know, choose one Again, it doesn't matter where you're at with your actual writing career, but choose yourself one um, one platform at least to try. Uh, set yourself up. Maybe it's on Twitter, you know, where it's mostly words. Maybe it's on Instagram where you can share photos and things like that. Perhaps it's a it's an extension of your Facebook profile. But start using a so one social media platform professionally um, because it's so important these days that you connect with with uh, not just readers but with um, you know industry people you need just to keep current with what's going on um, so you know get social and you don't have to be everywhere I think that's really important you mm. can just start with one and and then see how you go see what you like about it if you don't love a platform don't keep using it choose something else that you do like I think that's really important um, mm. Tip three is to find your community. Uh, and we I talked uh, a lot about the fact because, you know, people say to me, oh, Alison, I can't possibly build an author platform. I'm terrible at self-promotion. Mm -hmm. And I say, I say fantastic because mm -hmm. it's actually not what you're all about. What you're trying to do is create a community around yourself um, that's interested in you and your work. Connect yeah. to people. You do not want to be bashing them over the head with, you know, with you, you, you all the time, which is yeah. uh, very, very boring. Yeah. And um, in which leads me into tip four, which is to connect rather than campaign at people. Um, and I think that that is absolutely essential. You have to be, you know, you're out there sort of like to, to make friends, so to speak, rather than sort of, I mean, as I explained to them, you wouldn't rush into a dinner party with your book in front of you and shove it at people, would you? No. People you've never met, people you've never spoken to, you wouldn't do that. And so I think a lot of people can get sidetracked and forget that the social in social media um, and the social is really important. Like what would you? What would be your number one thing not to do on social media as an author? 
Um, I, I absolutely that um, it you should not be doing buy my book, buy my book, buy my book. Mm. It, it's it's the one thing not to do for sure. Mm. Mm. Very important. You definitely need that mix. It's funny that you say you wouldn't go to do a dinner party and shove your book in front of people because once I got invited to this dinner party and with some to somebody that uh, somebody's house that I didn't know that well. I only recently met them and they invited me over to dinner and they said, "And can you please bring ten of your books to give to all the guests?" <laughs> what? Yeah. <laughs> that is funny. Did you do yeah. that though? No. <laughs> Why would I do that? That's funny. And my fifth tip, which is probably in many ways the most important tip, was to start today, was Mm. not to put it off, was not to wait till your book comes out, was not to wait until, you know, the stars were in alignment and you were feeling at one with the universe. You have to basically just really, even if it scares you a little bit, and I think it does scare some people a little bit, you really have to start today. You need some, you Mm. need, you need some presence. Number one. Before you'll get your book gets Number published. One. Yeah. yeah. Very fantastic. Yeah. Uh, and of course, these and other fantastic platform building tips are in Al's fantastic course, How to Build Your Author Platform. And if you want to find out more and basically get a step-by-step blueprint on how you can start today, even if you haven't written your book yet, which is so important, you'll be way ahead of the game if you start now. Uh, and that is the advice that we actually give is to start before your book is even released. Absolutely. Um, yeah, and go to uh, writercenter.com.au slash platform to have a look at Al's course. So that's writercenter.com.au slash platform. Now, that brings us almost to the end of this week's episode. What are you doing in the coming week, Al? Uh, okay, so I have uh, two more days of school author visits this week, which is um, it's oh, just busy. like it's all happening at once. Yes, I think it's because... Beyond the Edge of the Map, which is book four of the Mapmaker Chronicle series, mm. came out um, just before the last school holidays. So I got contacted by a whole bunch of schools around that time. But, of course, nobody wanted me just before the holidays. And then everybody's got to get back to school and get organised and stuff. So it was sort of like you know, it was like the whole world agreed by mutual agreement that I would be very busy with school talks in May, which is, yeah, um, right. which is interesting. <laughs> I know. I know. Mm. Um, so that's what I'll be doing this week and just, um, you know, tidying up a whole bunch of stuff and getting myself um, sorted. I'm, I've got quite a few classes on for the um, Australian Writers' Centre at the moment in my role as online tutor. So, mm-hmm. yeah, I'm just, you know, chugging along as you do. And you, Val? Uh, I will be recovering from last week and uh, as I mentioned, I will be going to a number of Sydney Writers Festival sessions, which I do thoroughly enjoy. But my main point, my main hope, my main hope is that it doesn't rain because it's not that pleasant in that area when it rains. When it's glorious sunshine, it's probably one of the most (laughs) divine places, you know, ever on earth. Uh, And I will be packing snacks because I do find the food situation at the Sydney Writers Festival a little bit dire sometimes depending oh. on the time of day yes I always I often go hungry uh or if I do finally get food it's expensive and not very nice oh. um but if you can time it in appropriate times you can get lucky but otherwise I think I'm going to bring a, bring a packed lunch and some snacks mm. good idea <laughs> Packed so lunch. there's my there's, tip. For you those can't people. go wrong with a packed lunch, I don't think. <laughs> That's true. I've got my little popper, my little packet of sultanas. <laughs> oh, that's so cute. That's so cute. I'm very practiced at the packed lunch, you know. Like I could probably whip one up for you right now if you need me to. Oh, Cheese sandwich. 
Nice. All right. Well, uh, thank you for listening, everyone. And where do we find you online now? Uh, you'll find me at alisontait.com, which is, of course, my claim on the internet, um, yes. com. You'll find me on Twitter at, at Al Tate, and you will find me on Facebook and Instagram at Alison Tate Writer. And you, Val? Well, feel free to connect with me on Twitter at Valerie Koo and on Instagram also at Valerie Koo. Uh, and of, of course, feel free to connect with me on Facebook. I'm the Valerie Koo in Sydney. And if you want to check out any of the show notes, you'll find them at soyouwanttobeariter.com.au. Thanks for listening, everyone, and we look forward to chatting to you again next time. Bye. Thanks for listening to So You Want to Be a Writer. You'll find the show notes at writercentre.com.au slash podcast or sign up for our awesome and often hilarious weekly newsletter at writerscentre.com.au slash news where you'll find writing resources, giveaways, competitions and much more.